Before we look at the scripture <clears throat> this morning, I do, in the interests of transparency, which we, we have to have, Dan said that Dylan was a shining example for us. Listen, just Thursday, this is only, what, whatever this is, three days ago, he's in the office with his brother. I'm minding my, my own business, ministering to the lost, ministering to the sheep, fighting against sin, stamping out, you know, evil everywhere, working myself, you know, to the bone. And they kept asking me, oddly, because um, it was near office closing time, are you, are you heading home? You know, and I thought, what? Are, are you, you, going, you leaving pretty quick? And I said, no, finally. I'm not, I'm going to stay here and, you know, serve God while you guys all leave. Well, they had taken my coat, which is my property, and filled the sleeve with goldfish. Um, you know the goldfish little crackers? Which are children's crackers. Um, so there needs to be a little balance to what we heard this morning about what a great person, you know, Dylan and his brother are. So I, you need to know some of the backstory. okay? Anyway... <clears throat> Dylan comes in uh, through uh, a school program, and I really don't have any, any idea what he does, but he, came, he comes in for about an hour plus uh, every afternoon, and so we, we enjoy it. He's a, he is a good kid, um, but it's fun to torment him from time to time. So anyway, second thing I want to mention to the vast masses that are out in TV land watching this. Um, many of you who seriously have been unable to be here for six months or so, um, you're not forgotten at all. Um, I feel bad, however, for not being able to communicate more frequently with you, calling you, texting you, and so forth. Um, we, we do our best, but it seems like for some odd reason with everything that's been going on, our, our activities in the office and our, well, hospitalizations and just stuff that's going on is... Um, keeping us busier than I'm accustomed to for quite a while. So I feel that in some cases, I, 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 f I think of it in the middle of the night that I should have called so-and-so. I haven't talked to them for a while. I, I ask for uh, mercy. Uh, we haven't forgotten you, and we'll, we'll do our best to keep um, better contact if we can. Now, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, one of the uh, leading prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, 
a little over 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, prophesied by Isaiah. I want to read um, the short passage again and then look at some different aspects than we touched on last week. 9 of Isaiah chapter 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you, all of this is addressed to God, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian, a previous battle years earlier of deliverance. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What is being described here is victory over a long, dark period in the life of the nation of Israel. There are three things spoken of as being conquered, victory over. One, verse two, darkness. Those who were in darkness have seen a great light. Light always drives out darkness. Darkness and light cannot exist in the same space. And God dispels darkness with light. Second, in verse 4, he speaks of oppression, rod, staff. It means a rigorous, harsh rule and dominion over the people which they had experienced. So there is victory over defeat and domination. And domination is harsh rule, arrogant rule, cruel rule. And then in verse 5, it's victory over destruction. And it's described this way, that the, basically the equipment, the clothing, the armor of the warrior will no longer be used to destroy and defeat and kill them, but it will now serve the lowly purpose because warfare is gone. 
It'll serve the lowly purpose of a source of heat in the fireplace and fire to cook over. It's a complete victory over all of these issues that destroy us. Now, where did the victory come from? What's the source of the victory? First of all, we see in verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. What's that? That, we know, looking through the lens of the New Testament and the light from the New Testament, we look back on this passage and understand completely what it means. A child is born unto us, speaks of a Messiah, a deliverer, who is fully man because he was born. He had a human birth. He was a child who grew fully human. But then when we look at his character, when it says, and his name shall be called, it does not specifically mean these are names that were used to address Jesus, the Messiah. But these names are describe his character, his power, his wisdom, and so forth. And these names then, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Really, this next one, Eternal Father, is Father of Everlastings and Prince of Peace. The, this really, this passage, in a sense, has reverse order. We have the blessings, and then it concludes with the source of those blessings. The blessings are light in darkness, joy in victory over defeat and destruction of war. And then we find out why. What is the source of the victory that we have? A child is born unto us. A son is given to us. Even those little words, to us, it's for my benefit. It is a free gift that I, as a human, and as the human race, we did not petition for it. We didn't ask it because we weren't even aware that we needed it or that there was such a thing. But we receive God's free gift initiated by God of a victor. So the symbols of victory, light in darkness, and joy and peace and deliverance from destruction, 
come from a victor. A child is born unto us. Fully human, but when he describes in those words, mighty God, wonderful counselor, so forth, those are words that in no place in Scripture ever, there's not a single exception, none of those terms are used for a human. They're only used in reference to God. So what do we see then in verse 6? We see a fully human, but fully God, deliverer. In Matthew, when the angel speaks to Mary and says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joshua is really who gave the Israelites the promised land. Jesus is a form of that name, Joshua. And it means deliverer. We have a unique deliverer. Here it says a child is born to us. Lots of children have been born to us. But this child is unique. There is no other child like this child born into this world by a virgin, meaning God bypassed the normal, natural means of us arriving here because that normal means of coming into this world also included not only the transmission of a physical body and a temperament, a personality, and the traits of the parents. But in addition, humans alone also bequeath to their children a soul. There is that ever-living, never-dying aspect of a human which is the capacity to know the eternal God, and it is an immortal soul. No other being in the universe is, passes on immortality. Now, when, you say, when I say immortality, I do not mean that physically we don't die. Because of sin, we do. But that eternal aspect of us we call our soul our eternal spirit that never dies it's immortal we lay down the tent that we live in but the real we the real me which we cannot see that's the only thing that lasts forever and that eternal spirit lives forever either in the enjoyment of the presence of God, our maker, and the giver of that immortal spirit, or 
we live in eternal banishment from that God who made us because we have persistently spent our lives rejecting his claims over me. That is the, that is the source and the point of victory. That is the point that we need deliverance. We need a Savior. We need a Jesus who will deliver us. Now, we notice after the names uh, that are given, there's the statement that this that also tells us this child that is born is a king because it speaks of his government and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That doesn't mean necessarily that shoulders bear, carry something. It has to do with the general culture that there were certain... um, well, they're called ensigns. There are certain kinds of symbols of rule that often would literally be attached to the shoulders. It's almost like stars on your sleeve, on your shoulder, on the front of your cap, denoting you're a general. You're a one, two, three, four, and there's only been a few five stars. That's what it's talking about. There will be the marks of rulership, kingship, that he will carry on him. And that symbolizes a kingdom. You don't have a king unless you have a kingdom. And what about that kingdom? That kingdom began with his birth. And when he set up his kingdom when he opened his ministry among mankind when he went to the cross died for our sins triumphantly rose from the dead his kingdom was initiated and now his work not only with and through each of us, is to expand that kingdom. And to that, he makes the statement of his kingdom, the increase of his government, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This is an eternal kingdom, It is a kingdom that can never, ever be defeated. It is a kingdom that will never go away. It reminds us of Daniel's interpretation of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue, head of gold, chest of silver, arms, and stomach, of bronze, polished bronze, legs of iron, feet and toes of iron and clay mixed. The interpretation is given. Those are all the subsequent kingdoms down to the Roman kingdom. 
And then in that vision, Nebuchadnezzar the king said, I saw a stone that was cut out of the side of the mountain without hands. And it rolled down the mountain and hit that great image and ground the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold to powder. And then it says, and the stone grew and filled the whole earth. And Daniel interpreted that to Nebuchadnezzar about the Messiah and that he would establish a kingdom and it would conquer. I do think, along with the hymn writer of the carol we finished our music this morning with, heard the bells on Christmas Day, where in that verse he said, that song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, mocks, is mocked, is re rejected by, it seems, the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground, as he said in that verse. Hate is strong. Hate is strong. Goodwill, there's, we see none of it. And all of it shouts that goodwill among men is false. It's easy for us today to look and say, Christ's kingdom is forever. And the increase of His kingdom, there's no end. What? One thing, we can't see the rest of the world. We interpret everything through our own region or our own country. And we look at our country, and yes, it does not look like the kingdom of Christ is growing. Worldwide, it still is. There are, today, there are Christian hotspots around the world. Southeast Asia, South America. There are a number of places where the kingdom of God, Africa, is experiencing major moves of God. We don't see that because we're just focused on what goes on here and virtually none of it's good. So we therefore think nothing's happening. I know God told us that things will get worse and worse. But think of this. There were no Christians on Christmas the first Christmas morning. But today, and I know the definition of Christian sometimes can be pretty elastic, but today, it's the number one religion in the world. Well, quietly, almost unobserved, we have seen Christ's kingdom increase. So, it is a never-ending, everlasting kingdom that finally will conquer overall. Now, finally, I want us to look at the use of this second verse of chapter 9 in Matthew. Matthew 
chapter 4, Matthew is always refers to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He, among the four gospel writers, mentions Old Testament prophecies the most and records their fulfillment. And when we look at chapter 4 of Matthew, <clears throat> we'll begin with verse 12. This is the initiating of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, that was by Herod the king, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the Galilee, Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribes out of the twelve, of the twelve tribes of Israel, that were located at the northern border of Israel, Palestine. They were, and as refers to it in Isaiah 9, they were always ravaged first because the kingdoms, Babylon, Assyria, the Hittites, whoever, would come down from the north through the Euphrates Valley and they would attack Israel through Zebulun and Naphtali. So they were always getting torn up. They were considered almost stepchildren, um, red-headed stepchildren in the <clears throat> people of Israel because of the fact they were the frontier and they always got invaded first. That's some of the gloom and darkness that God's referring to about that area. Now, <clears throat> leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This, his moving to that northern area, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. A couple words out of that that I want to just notice. In the New Testament translation of this, twice the word sitting is used. Those sitting in great darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death. The word there describes defeat, despair, a form of imprisonment that they can't get out of. It's so dark they can't see to leave. It is the dominion that they are under of darkness. They're sitting. They've given up hope to escape it. They are completely dominated by it. Now, I intentionally saved verse 17. From that time, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that verse interpreting Isaiah 9-2 tell us? That the darkness is the darkness of sin. That the dominion is the dominion of sin. That the destruction is the destruction of sin. Because repent is a theological and moral and spiritual term. This is not. You need to change your diet. You need to work out. You need. That's not a problem. We need to elect Christians to government. Now that's a good thing. But hear me, it won't fix human hearts that are the problem. It won't touch it. Because that is not the problem. The problem is we live in rebellion, the whole human race, against God. And when we rebel against God, the fruits of that, darkness, destruction, dominion, slavery to sin. Jesus said when you commit sin, you're the slave to it. You can't quit. It doesn't matter the resolutions we make, the promises we make, the I've learned my lesson this time. No. No. Because we're under dominion. I don't have control over myself when I am infected with sin. So really... All of the you-need-to-change-your-behavior lectures, whether it comes from a pulpit, whether it comes from a counselor, whether it comes from whoever, the truth is we're telling people to do things they can't do. <laughs> they can't because they're enslaved. The, the destruction and the dissension within the human heart of still in spite of being under dominion of sin we never lose sight of what ought to be and what we wish were the case no one ever forgets somewhere it's it's imprinted in our hearts what it ought to be what should life be we shouldn't be living like this, we will say. Maybe out loud, at least in our hearts. This is no way to live. But we're powerless to change it. And the, the secular world and half the church cook up all kinds of human means to try to get people to change, but they can't. They're enslaved. That's why Jesus, his first word out of his mouth, first sermon. I imagine Jesus, and I could we can quickly document it. John the Baptist, who preceded Jesus, and then Jesus, and then Peter, and all the apostles. And Paul specifically said their entire 
job description was to preach repentance toward God. And Jesus set the standard. He blazed the trail. He was a he was um, an unrelenting, repetitious repentance preacher. Because he knows that's the problem. The good news is there's victory over the darkness. There's victory over destruction. There is victory over all of the fruits of sin if we will take Jesus' way, which is repent. What does repent mean? Repentance in its simplest definition it is, it is a God-caused or a God-initiated sorrow for sin and a resolute turning from it. Repentance, in its simplest, maybe most um, watered-down sense, is to change your mind. It's to change. It's to turn around. It's to do a 180. But repentance is basically, it's, it's a spiritual, theological, biblical term that has to do with recognizing the fact that I've revolted deeply against God. And the God-caused sorrow for sin is, as I've tried to make it clear in the past, it is sorrow not for what my sins have done to me. Sin does a lot to us. It destroys our lives. It destroys homes. It wreaks havoc wherever it is. And so, understandably, we look at this, the mess we're in, and God uses the afflictions and the fruits of sin to bring me to the place where I'm sick enough to get out of it, to call out to Him, to rescue me from it. As long as we're comfortable, as long as we're comfortable, there's no reason to change. No one is inspired to change who is content with their current life. There's no reason to change. So what God does, He allows... Jeremiah said, your iniquities will teach you. Your sins will correct you. God uses the wreckage of sin to make us aware and miserable enough to say, this isn't working. Now we're in a place where God can get a hold of my heart and can show me a new and a victorious way of light out of the darkness. So Jesus then calls us, you turn around. You turn around not because, not merely to better your life circumstances. That's not a deep enough motive. The real sorrow for sin is, Lord, that's what I've done to you. I've grieved your heart. I have brought sorrow. 
Why was Jesus called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Because he faced the onslaught of what sin does. It's, it was sin that made people finally rise up and say, kill him, who they had seen touch the blind and make them see and make the deaf hear and the lame walk and seen him take little children up into his arms, put his hands on them and bless them. What had he ever done? Fed the 5,000. They'd seen it all. What kind, think here, what kind of moral and spiritual utter insanity would make people look at a man like that who had walked in front of them for three years and say, kill him. The only thing that can explain that is the blackness of the human heart with the light of God removed. The wonderful message, though, of Christmas is God never gave up on us, not for one second. Nor did he ever cave to what sin had done and say, man, it's too bad of a mess, I can't fix that. No, he never deviated. He never gasped. He said, here's, what, here's the plan. Myself, I, will come into this world that I've created and I will clothe myself with humanity, which I created. And I will walk and teach and live and talk among those that have become estranged from me that I created. And why am I going to do that? So I can judge them and damn them? That's not his wish. It's to turn me around. It's to... It's to make reconcile us. It's to bring us back to Him. So that what, what was my enemy, Him, God was the biggest threat to our own sovereignty. I now re, I am restored to God as my heavenly friend, the dearest to me. That's the reconciliation that God came into this world in the form initially of a helpless baby. Which I need to quit, but that is another symbol. That's a sign of what God always does. We love the spectacular, the shiny, the sparkly, you know, the sensational, and God never does that. Never. He starts with a mustard seed. He starts with, he said, yeast in dough. He says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in dough. Boy, I tell you what, that'll start a mega church. You understand? Boy, I tell you what, we got the band and the smoke machines and we got all the flashing lights. I tell you what, 
it's as good as watching dough rise. That's how God works. You know what? There's, I, you know how I mean this. I don't mean to be sacrilegious. God's got a real stubborn streak. What we like, that's enough for him to say, okay, I'm not doing it. I will not, I will not walk, God says, to mankind's drumbeat. I'm just not going to do it. And so he always chooses, he said, the small things, the insignificant. He said, I choose the foolish things to confound the wise. I use the weak things to shock the powerful. That's God's way. It all started with a baby in a manger. Let's bow our heads. We'll just dismiss with prayer. I want us, I want us in our own hearts to just offer up to God as Dan comes to pray and dismiss us. Prayer of thanksgiving for the, the little beginnings that God sponsors, but in it is all power. A never-ending, never-ceasing-to-increase kingdom that we're a part of.